casual observers may not know, but a quick survey of my office might reveal to passers-by that I am a fan of baseball. Those who know me well know that I've often used baseball as a theological lens, as a way of understanding and interpreting scripture, and thus to preach on the same. Those same people would say that I've exercised considerable restraint in not having already preached on baseball here at the cathedral in my first many months here. But today, unfortunately for you, the fine people of St. James Cathedral, that streak is broken today. Because baseball is what came to my mind as I was considering the readings that we've just heard. You see, in all the years that I've been a fan of baseball, there's something I've been observing and contemplating that interests me greatly. And it's about the people who manage and coach baseball teams. And what it boils down to is this. It seems to be widely true that the people who make the best coaches and the best managers tend not to be people who, when they were players, were among the premier and elite athletes of their time. They actually tended to be fairly mediocre players in their careers. Not to get mired in statistical minutia, but it could be illustrated by this statistic. Of the 10 managers who led teams to the postseason last October in Major League Baseball, only two of them had notable careers as baseball players, and another two of them never played a single game of Major League Baseball. Interestingly, this goes the other way, too. Think of the greatest baseball players of all time, those names that you know even if you're not a fan of baseball. Babe Ruth, Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle, Cy Young. Very few of these people went on to be managers of teams despite their excellence in the game. I imagine this is probably true of other sports, too. Buried within this hopelessly tangential intro to a sermon, and what I've been observing is this, and we know this to be true, the best teachers weren't always the best students. The people who lead teams to great victories are more often the players who were moderate, who were reliable, but behind-the-scenes type players. People who were gifted with an ability to see a bigger picture that went beyond individual excellence. Today, on this third Sunday of Easter, the focus of our readings begins to shift away from the empty tomb and starts pointing us towards the early church. For the next few weeks of this Easter season, our readings will come entirely from the New Testament as we delve into the book of Acts, the book that tells us of those first evangelistic and missional activities of the church as the good news of the risen Christ spread across the Mediterranean. It's in these readings that we encounter the post-resurrection ministry of those two key apostles of the church, Peter and Paul. Peter, who we find in today's gospel reading, sitting on the shore with the risen Christ, eating breakfast with him, and confessing three times his love for Jesus. And Paul, who we meet as Saul, since morning's reading from the book of Acts, a persecutor of Christians. 
And with the two stories of these key apostles, I can't help but wonder if this revelation from the world of baseball might not help put the ministries of Peter and Paul in a bit of perspective. That the best teachers weren't always the best students. Not to say, of course, that Peter and Paul are middle of the pack or unimpressive apostles, indistinguishable from the rest. In fact, quite the opposite. Indeed, the Peter and the Paul who we meet in Scripture today, I'd like to suggest are ideal evangelists for the faith, ideal apostles to have planted those first seeds and to do that teaching work because they weren't particularly good students. And so today we dig deeper into those two students turned teachers, and in them we find our own invitation to be apostles, to be people sent by God. And may we also find our prayer for the Easter light to shine more brightly in the world. You've got to be kidding me, Ananias said. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority to bind all who invoke your name. Such is the report that Ananias, one of the disciples in Damascus, had heard about Saul. Our reading from the book of Acts today tells us that story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. The story of Paul is one that is so well attested to in Scripture. In fact, Scripture, the story in the ministry of Paul, actually makes up a significant portion of the New Testament. Paul is the one who plants the early, who plants the early church among the Gentiles, who brings the good news of this Easter resurrection to the non-Jewish world, whose words we hear most Sunday mornings. It's on the road to Damascus with the arrest warrants in his hand that Paul finds himself to be a Christian. And in between Paul and his conversion to Christianity is Ananias. Ananias, who has heard the report on Saul. He knows just what kind of a student he has been and what he has come to the city to do. But the risen Lord knows the real report on Saul that he's called not to be a persecutor, but rather a teacher of the faith. And so the risen Christ encourages Ananias, saying, Go, for Saul is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. Paul's discipleship in Christ begins with gestures of faith and trust. His own trust, Saul's own trust, as he travels blindly to Damascus to be healed and renewed by the Christians that he had come to arrest. And Ananias' trust, as he sets aside his misgivings, his anxiety, his fears, his mistrust, and allows Christ to work through him. The best teachers weren't always the best students, and of Paul, This can be said to be true. Saul will get up from his bed, end his three days' captivity, and spend the rest of his ministry inviting people into relationship with the Christ who met him on the road. And although he will adopt the new name Paul, he never puts his past that far from him. In his own letter to the Corinthians, Paul will later write that he considers himself to be least among the apostles 
because of his former life of persecution. This is how the student, the student of violence and zeal, becomes the teacher, the teacher of faith and hope and love. Because Jesus comes even to the hard-hearted and invites them in. And so we pray. We pray for students of intolerance to be converted, to allow the Easter light to come in and turn them into teachers of peace. We pray for ourselves, for our own occasional stubbornness, our own preconceived notions, that God might open to us new and life-giving ways. And we pray for those who are on the road, that everyone may know more fully the peace and forgiveness of Christ and live as examples of God's grace. The gospel passage we heard today shares with us an intimate moment between Peter and the risen Christ as they share that breakfast on the shore. In the book of Acts, Peter is the apostle and the teacher to the Jewish communities, sharing the good news of Christ's resurrection and victory over death. It's Peter who decisively presides over that debate over how the Gentiles were to be included among the believers. But in the Gospels, Peter's not quite so confident. It's Peter who's with Jesus at the most important points in the gospel narrative. He's with him on the mountaintop at the transfiguration. He's with Jesus when he prays in the garden the night that he's arrested. And when Jesus asks his disciples who they believed him to be, it's Peter who, maybe with a bit of nervous conviction, says, you are the Messiah. Arguably Peter's first evangelistic act ever. It's also Peter who denies Christ three times during the Passion and weeps as he sees all that Jesus had foretold now come to pass. It was Peter to whom Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan, when Jesus even mentions the idea of his coming death. It's Peter who loses his faith and sinks into the water when Jesus calls him out of the boat. As a disciple, Peter is marked with a fierce dedication to Jesus, but an occasionally wavering faith that gets the best of him from time to time. Peter is my favorite disciple. This is the Peter to whom Jesus says, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. It's to the Peter that wavered and doubted and denied, yet trusted and confessed and ran naked off a boat at the sight of Jesus, to whom he says, Follow me. The best teachers weren't always the best students. And of Peter, this is also true. Because Peter is the disciple who got it wrong often enough to finally figure out how to get it right. It's why he's my favorite, because Peter is the most like you and me. Perfectly imperfect. That's Peter. Just like us, he learns the honest way, he learns the hard way, that those things that we believe are impediments to our living as Christ in the world are actually our greatest strengths. Because God can work perfection through imperfection. And as imperfect as we might feel, as much as we might try to say when God gives that call to us, surely there are better people than me to do this, 
Jesus says to us, tend my sheep. And so we pray. We pray that when we find ourselves doubting and denying, we may turn and confirm and confess our love of Christ. We pray for those who don't feel that they have a gift to offer, that Christ will say to them, follow me. And we pray that we may find our, conf- our perfection in Christ, not by being perfect students, but faithful students. And speaking of perfection, it's said that the best players in baseball, players who are having a really good season, actually hit the ball about 30 to 35% of the time. On this third Sunday of Easter, as we gather in the Easter light that so shone around those first disciples and apostles of the early church, as we gather here today as teachers and yet students of Christ, I have to say, I like our chances. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.